so many plastic bags and so much crap in the water. I remember at one point surfing and I thought if I fall and I get a mouthful of water, I might choke on a plastic bag. That's how bad it was. Welcome. This week my guest is the amazing, iconic Kelly Slater, who I'm honored to meet. To meet and him. my lifelong friend, Porter Turnbull, man who's shared expeditions with me to Antarctica, who's shared discovery of right whales, and is a man of the world. I'm so pleased to have the two of you here this week because as we started this podcast series, you know, I've got a lot of recommendations from people about what to cover, and the whole purpose of it is really multidisciplinary. You know, I'm a scientist, but I don't want this to be about science. It's got to be about everything to do with the ocean and, and civilization and our society. And I can't tell you how many times people said, Greg, you got to get the surfing community involved. And I'm going, well, it'd be great. I don't surf, and I don't know any surfers except Porter. So I called Porter up, and Porter said, I know the guy, Kelly Slater. Prior to this week, I was back in LA where I live, and my girlfriend said, oh, you know the guy you're gonna interview, he's just on CNN. And I said, what? She said, yeah, look at this. So we found it online, and it was a picture of you on a wave, and you're on the surfboard, and then you like, it looks like you fall head over heels and are completely like gone, and you disappear into the curl, and you, know, you assume that's over, and then suddenly you emerge out of the curl and you're standing there. Mm. And I'm like, my God, you know, even to a non-surfer, non-expert, I said, how did he do that? The kinesthetic ability that you have, uh, you displayed there, and then I've since learned that this is part of, part of your, your art, part of your profession, part of what you're, you're so good at. So, so I'm kind of hooked now, and I even last night talked to somebody about maybe trying surfing myself. I asked if, I was too, if it was too late. Somebody said, no, no, it's never too late, Greg. You might be able to do it. But before we get into all that, I, 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 did, I did a little bit of research, and I was, I was struck by this one quote by Timothy Leary. Surfing is a metaphor of life to me. He says, think of the tube, now think of the wave, as being the past. And what you're trying to do is engage with the past in the present moment, which I guess is like when you start to ride the wave. And then riding the wave is the future, right? So I started thinking about that. I said, it's a pretty good metaphor, actually. It's very zen. So the, as a surfer, I guess you are looking at the wave coming, and that's the past. So we're all like in our lives right now, thinking about what happened yesterday, what happened the week before. And we've got to engage in this moment based on the past. But more importantly, we want to ride this moment into a future that we're all satisfied with, whether it's going to be you know, going to see your daughter this afternoon or go surfing or whatever. And I guess I kind of wanted to get, get your reaction to this quote. Have you heard the quote before? Does, does it make any sense to you? I, I've read a couple quotes from him just somehow touching on surfing. I, so I, I kind of surmise that he must have had some friends that surfed or something. He was kind of in that Laguna Brotherhood or something. Right. Uh, and, and a lot of those guys surf. Just as far as a wave being a metaphor for life, my take on it would be that the tube is essentially like the center of, it's the center of the universe for a surfer. Hmm. And it, it's the center of all the action. So no matter what kind of surfing you do or where you surf in the world, the ultimate is to get inside the barrel as deep as you possibly can. Because it's sort of like you're almost at the point of no return and then you make it. And so there's something that goes on it's first something with the serotonin levels in your mind. It is an addiction. It, I, w I would say it's probably right up there with some sort of a drug addiction on some level, the, the feeling you get from surfing. And it, you know, it just happens to be healthy and positive, and people don't see it as a negative, even though you spend your whole life and all your money doing it. <laughs> <laughs> 
you leave your family, leave your girlfriend, you relationships. Know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, two things you just said there. One is you said he was part of the Brotherhood of Laguna. Is that what you said? Yeah, there was some sort of brotherhood thing going on there. In this, I don't, I don't know deeply about the whole. Well, I did notice. A, I, I watched there. I, another tip Porter gave me was the film "Congratulations" that you are featured in, that just uh, was released. Uh, and um, Momentum Generation. Momentum Generation, great film. And there was a lot in there about brotherhood and bonding yeah. and your friends, and. Uh, the and Brotherhood I was talking about in Laguna was yeah. a bunch of guys who did acid. Oh, whole, but, oh that was so, a different Brotherhood. Yeah, different okay. Brotherhood. <laughs> all right. It was some right. smuggling. There was some, maybe some illicit <laughs> things happening there. So, uh, oh, all right. All right. Different a, Brotherhood. And, and a lot of those guys sort of dodged the draft, and, you know, but quite a few of them surfed and bailed out to Bali and yeah. you know, yeah. became traffickers. They, they had a guru, too, didn't they? The, um, Baba, somebody or other. Yeah. Did they? Yeah. Was it Sai Baba? Uh, no. I, don't, I forget which Baba it was. He might have been, too. Yeah. Late for There's that. a Baba unknown, but yeah, there is a there is there was a leader. I think he's like Timothy Leary. He's dead, but mm. yeah. I look at people in the world as uh, ocean people, mm. and as like people that are yet to be ocean people. I think everybody at the end of the day wants to be or will be an ocean person because this planet, you know, this this is an ocean planet. It's been widely acknowledged that if we had the pictures that we have of the Earth today, when we were naming the earth it wouldn't be called earth it would be called ocean because this is mm. you know it's 70 percent water and and i've always been struck by uh you know that that picture that first picture that came back from the apollo it was it was shot by astronaut uh james anderson as the apollo spacecraft was coming around the moon it's called Earthrise, and it was the first time that we saw the earth in its entirety from a distance so that it looked smaller and it was blue, and it was, I think it was 1969, and I always kind of wondered why we didn't pick up on the fact at that time that this earth is dominated by an ocean, and we better pay attention to that ocean if we're going to continue to survive, because the ocean provides most of the oxygen we breathe, it provides high-quality protein for over a billion people every day, moderates the climate that we have. The blood in our veins is salty because we came from the ocean originally. I mean, there's just so much about us. We are all ocean people. Then there are cultures <clears throat> of ocean people. Oh, and by the way, staying with the NASA thing for a minute, when the Voyager spacecraft, that was the first probe that the humanity sent out into deep space, the moment that it left the gravitational influence of the sun, that is the moment that it actually departed our solar system and started to head out into deep space, Carl Sagan he had to argue with the NASA engineers, but he asked them to turn the camera around one last time and take a picture of Earth. Uh, yeah. And it was the famous yeah. uh, self-portrait, they called it. And they took the last picture that was possible to take of the Earth, and it was so small that it was one pixel in the picture. And guess what? That pixel was blue. blue. Mm. Still, we didn't like get a wave of awareness that this planet is ocean dominated and let's think about it that way we're still you know we're terrestrial animals right we 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 evolved in the jungles of africa although there there's a lot of argument about us having a coastal evolutionary part of our history but today we do know what the oceans provide we do know that the future of our time on this planet is totally dependent on the ocean if, if you want to see what the earth would be like without an ocean we've got plenty of examples in our solar system 
just look around us, right? Mm. So, so it is important. So I gravitate towards what I call ocean people. And there's, there's ocean scientists, there's ocean divers, there's ocean artists. And the surfing community is this particularly passionate community that I still don't really understand. Because I, I know you guys a little bit, but people devote their lives to it. I mean, Porter, he, he, you're, a, you're, a, you're an ornithologist. Yeah, you've you're, you're you've devoted your life to diving. I, that's right. It's the same sort of thing. But the surfing community, you guys have this, uh, you know, there's the, there's the Surf Rider Foundation, which I'm, a, I'm vaguely aware of. But then I meet these, I meet everybody, and it's like, and, it, and it's not always about the size of the wave. From a non-surfer, I would think, you know, big wave, that's what you kind of guys are kind of after. But, but then it's not. I saw Porter surf in Antarctica on a wave that was about eight inches high mm. one day. And, and you and Wes were so excited about that. Yeah, we, can, well, can we hadn't surfed for a day or two. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, come on. Look, what is, it, what is it about surfing? I mean, I mean, we talked about Timothy Leary's, you know, you, you said it was the well, center. Well, there probably is some biochemistry that yeah. Kelly alluded to or flatly stated, right? Yeah. Like this chemistry going on. It's like an addiction, but it's addiction to, there's a physical, a kinesthetic, there's addiction to beauty, the beauty of the ocean, maybe wave pools too. I don't know about that yet. Yeah. But there is uh, something about the wave. We were hanging around in Tahiti once with your friend Ed and a um, group of surfers. We had been surfing all week in Huahini mm -hmm. and we're on my boat and... Isn't that arguably goes, where surfing started in Tahiti? Uh, Thousands of years ago some with people the Tahitians. Say, yeah. Yeah. Some people argue Peru, some people argue Tahiti. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But uh, Ed was going, well, you surfers think you're special, um, but it's just a sport like any other sport. It's different, though. It, it, well, and we tried to argue with Ed, and you know how Ed is, his you know, opinion. And uh, finally someone said to him, I think it was Shortest, an Aussie guy, and he said, have you ever seen because he he drew an analogy to volleyball he said volleyball players are just like you guys they're just as stoked and he said how many volleyball players or basketball players or tennis players hang around staring at the volleyball court or staring at the basketball court yeah and then we got on with drinking beer yeah yeah <laughs> yeah listen yeah I'm, we listen, love I, waves I, and I, our whole I, lives are structured around i get up in the morning well i already kind of know what the surf's gonna be yeah. doing it's the first thing i do I don't keep a schedule, I, I, my natural rhythm. And that's the thing that surfing gives us a lot of things, physicality, but it gives us a sense of, of not living in a natural rhythm. And in the moment. In the moment. Yeah, as far as like schedules. So we, what we were just talking about before that you weren't in on the joke. Yeah, yeah. So Waimea, Waimea has a river uh -huh. and that river gets blocked off by the sand as the, you know, as the swells come. Yeah. And it blocks the river off until the river builds up really high and then they, usually the lifeguards or the bodyboarders, will dig out that river. Yeah. And it creates this downhill flow and it creates standing waves. Yeah. And it's happening right now. Right now, don't, he's gonna go. I've been trying to get that damn thing for the last couple of weeks. And uh, <laughs> it really only happens after you've had a big swell and then you have rain and then the swell gets small. Yeah. So if the waves are too big, it's kind of dangerous to, for people to get washed out in the ocean. Yeah. So, so we're gonna, we're, he's you, telling us we're going to adjourn right now and come back tomorrow or no, later so what, today. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that like schedule-wise, like for us, you just it's going to pop up. Somebody's going to call you and say, "Hey, let's go surf here. Let's go there." The wind just did this. The swell just popped it's up. Now. So something happens, you know, on a big on a big swell or a small swell or a north or a west direction, when the winds out of the east or the winds out of the south or what, somewhere's going to turn on, and you got to be just kind of ready and, and available for that. So you you just as a surfer. And that's probably more of a metaphor. You just don't like being locked down, you know. 
it's it's that freedom true freedom to just you know it might be he wants to jump on his boat and sail to Tahiti for a month um, I might see a swell in Sumatra over Christmas and decide I want to spend Christmas in Sumatra catching waves because that's a gift to me so it's it's something that's sort of indescribable I guess I guess the, the maybe who else could relate? Skiers when the snow's good. Yeah. Um, maybe. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's certain conditions. You need these natural certain conditions in the environment to to afford what you want to do. I mean, my, also diving. If the if the water's super yeah. murky, you know, you got to wait for that water to get clear. And a certain time of year, it's going to rain less in Costa Rica or wherever you want to dive. Surfing maybe yeah. is more critical though, because you have, you have swell, swell direction, yeah. wind, wind direction, wind yeah. strength. But this also kind of. And, yeah. yeah. But this also kind of I've noticed. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm a diver. Uh, I devoted my life to oceanography, not because I love science and oceanography, it's because I love diving. And I found out that that was an area that I could dive all the time and, and pursue a career and, and, and get paid. And, and I didn't become a pilot, which we have flying over us right now. I would say we'll pilots, we'll pilots have a similar kind of thing to surfers, you know? The, I think it's the way they ride the air and stuff. Like they, my pilot friends just love flying. Yeah. Just love it. Well, Perry, who, my son, who's a surfer, you know Perry, and he actually went to flight school. And I visited him, he was back east after a couple months, and he stood up and told me all the stuff he had learned. He was getting straight A's and Delta flight school. And he goes, and thanks for the help, but I'm out of here. I go, what do you mean? You know, he's like 20 years old, and he goes, flying? Because I think he thought it was going to be takeoffs and landings and strafing and bombing runs. He said, you're just sitting there. Oh, yeah. And he said, the most exciting time is when you get to do something like get on the radio. He goes, I'm over it. <laughs> As a surfer, he couldn't handle it. Well, maybe there's, there are different types different of Different types of well, you know, If you're a commercial yeah. airline pilot, it's probably okay. not that fun. Okay, exactly. But I got a buddy with a plane, and he always takes off and lands, yeah. and the rest of the time he's in the back of the plane. You okay. cheated with, death yeah. again. Okay, with, okay, pilots, you can actually get a career. Right. Flying airplanes, people around a But a schedule, you get a schedule. Diving, <clears throat> you can become an instructor, you can become a scientist like me. I even looked into commercial diving until oh, when I was about 16 until some guy tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey kid, commercial diving is underwater construction work. I think you've got more in you than that. Mm. Why don't you think of something else? Which I did. Nothing wrong with commercial diving, pays well and all that. But surfing, you can't make a career at surfing unless you are Kelly Slater. It's, as far a, small, as I it's a small number that make yeah. a good living at surfing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's um, also, or if, you know, a, a, the original the original company owners were all surfers. They just wanted to be able to go surf, so they started Quicksilver, Billabong, Rip Curl, all yeah. these Volcom. All these companies were started because these guys were surfers, and they they weren't they, they weren't the best guys in the world. Some of them were really good surfers or pros, but maybe not world champion guys. And they started these companies, and then they that that afforded them their lifestyle for the rest of their lives. Was there a moment when you knew that surfing was going to be your career? Um, I had an inkling when I was really young, like nine or ten. Ten years old, I won the East Coast Championships, and that gave me an idea, like, okay, I'm, I must be good at this thing. And then when I was, when I was twelve, I won a contest against all the older guys. Um, they would run these super heats, which were like the winners of each division, and I was in the youngest division, and I beat all the men's and juniors and stuff, and I won a trip to Hawaii. 1984. You'd never been to Hawaii? No, it was my first trip. How I old were you now? Uh, I was 12. At that point I knew, okay, I can I can beat the best guys. At, they were basically the best older guys on the East Coast that were amateurs. 
And then um, I surfed a pro event and it beat a pro, a pro guy from Australia who'd flown to Florida to surf this event. Um, granted, the waves were about this big and I was about this big. And he was 200 pounds. Mike Newling was the guy's name. Um, and then when I was, when I was uh, 13, I won a pro-am against all the best East Coast. What's pro, pro I mean, like sorry. Like amateurs can oh, surf pro, a pro Oh, pro amateurs, event, okay. A pro, okay. pro-am event, and I, I beat all the best uh, East Coast pros, all the guys from Florida. Right, so you started really, getting evidence that, I'm, that yeah, I got this. and at that point, I, I realized, like, okay, I can, I'm probably going to have a career out of this, you know? Because any, any contest I really put my mind to, I could win. And I realized that was, that was the thing. In fact, when I got here, I was on the phone with a buddy of mine who kind of helps me with a lot of stuff. And, and he, you know, his quote to me just now, he goes, look, Kelly, you've, he was giving me a little talk about some stuff that's going on in my life right now. But he goes, look, Kelly, you, you got out of that little shithole town you grew up in and you made something yourself. And he goes, no offense to your, he goes, no offense to your town. I look, I don't care. I love my town. But, you know, what was goes, your town? What was the town? Cocoa Beach, Florida. Just so we know. Okay. Yeah. Hello, but, you know, Cocoa Beach. So, so Cocoa Beach, but Cocoa Beach was this town that in the, in the 60s and 70s was the place to be. It was a young place. Um, the, you know, the Space Center was all there. Buzz Aldrin and all the guys lived in Cocoa Beach or Satellite Beach or Cape Oh, Canaveral. that's right, they did, yeah. They all lived in my hometown, basically. Guys, yeah. and, and, and Cocoa Beach had the highest average GPA in the nation in the high school because it was all the, all the engineers. Oh, Everyone worked right. by NASA. All right, their kids right. were, were going to school there. So it was kind of like this place to be. It just had this mecca, and it was almost like um, spring break meets space. And yeah. everyone stayed there and partied and worked. There was uh, a lot of jobs and engineering firms and that kind of thing, the aerospace uh, industry. And um, so it was really a, a great place when I was a kid. And um, a lot of that sort of packed up and left. So there, there hasn't been much opportunity there, I would say, since the 90s or whatever. Um, and, you know, unless you actually had a job working on the space shuttle, there wasn't much else going on. There's not a lot of industry around our, our town. Things are in Orlando, things are in Miami, things are in Jacksonville maybe Tampa, but, you know, kind of, there's these sort of areas of, uh, that are kind of devoid of much business. And so, so, so that really wasn't a surfing Mecca, was it? No, it, well, they, they coined it, I think it was Ron Johns that did it, they coined it the small wave surfing capital of the world. Yeah. But we have tiny waves, it's what we're known for, and it's, it's, it's almost never good. If it is good somewhere else down the coast or up the coast, it's a little bit better because it gets a fetch of the swell a little more. We, we, if you look at a map, Cocoa Beach is just south of Cape Canaveral, Port yeah. Canaveral, uh, all the launch pad, and that's a big peninsula of land that sticks out like that. And all the swell tends to come from the north. And so what happens is it pushes all that sand out and it's got this really shallow bank offshore. So the, the continental shelf is, you can go out 50 miles and free dive to the bottom, you know. All the swells drag along that continental shelf on the way into the beach, and by the time they get there, they're slow and a lot of energy's gone. So it's just always tiny. I'm fascinated by you, uh, your description of the ocean. You describe the ocean in, in very technical ways, you know. This place has this kind of continental shelf with this kind of break and this mm. kind of thing, and, and that's obviously from from your from your knowledge from your knowledge of surfing, well, we and all study a lot of different yeah. maps surfers and Google Earths and stuff. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah. I can ocean tell you almost yeah. any coast in the world. Really? Yeah. So you, what do you look for? Well, you look at the fetch of swell in the ocean. Okay. So you got to have something that's open to a constant swell pattern. Yeah. A storm pattern. Most storms in the world go from west to east, unless they're a hurricane and right. they're a cyclone, and those go a lot of times from east to west. Right. 
Um, so you're kind of looking for the seasonal patterns. Um, usually wintertime of the big storms, southern hemisphere is our summer and northern hemisphere is our winter. Are there a lot of surf spots that have yet to be discovered? I believe so, yeah. He would probably know better than me, but yeah. I, is that, is that I something surfers do? You guys are always like trying to find some new place that yeah. no one's ever found? Accessibility. Do you need a boat? Can you get there by plane? Is it something that's snuck under everyone else's noses? Is it warm or cold? Yeah. Um, what's the chances you can go there and the wind's right, the swell's right? Uh, and, yep. and do you want to go somewhere like in Marshall Islands or Micronesia and spend all that money in, in logistical effort to get there and then not know there's something there already? Do you, yeah. want, to, do you want to go discover or do you want to go to somewhere you know somebody has been there and said, oh, there's a good wave at this spot? So there's a lot of that. I got, I got a friend whose buddy is a, a boat captain. He drives boats, all, sails boats all around the world. And he says he has four or 500 unsurfed, uh, charted unsurfed waves around the world. Because so. you know, Kelly, what I saw on that clip at CNN, I saw somebody with, you know, just <laughs> love, the, love the roosters here too. This is live, not live, but this is, this is out here in beautiful Hawaii. So. Everybody, forgive the background noise, but it's part of our part of what's what what. Makes Don't it, forgive it. Love it. Love it. We're gonna love it. That's right. We're gonna yeah. love this. Blame Porter. Yeah. Somebody feed that chicken. Uh, <clears throat> we used to just measure people's abilities by their mathematical ability and by their ability to write. That's how we did it in school. That's how the SATs were done. But mm. now we recognize that people have emotional intelligence. They have people intelligence and physical intelligence or kinesthetic intelligence is, is another area now that we look at. And you obviously are off the chart when it comes to that. Are there any other things you do in life where that comes out? Uh, do you, are there any other sports or activities? I, well, or? I, was, I was good at almost all sports as a kid. You were? Yeah, yeah. I, that was my thing. It was like my way to express myself. Um, I did good in school. Um, I was probably third or fourth in my class at graduation. Um, I didn't. I didn't especially focus on school. I just kind of, when I was there, I was like, I'll get it done, and it, you know, it didn't seem very hard for me. Yeah. But I, I definitely didn't. Like, like my goal as a senior in high school was to not do one day of homework. So I made sure I did everything while I was at school, got it done, and then everything else was free time. Um, but I was, I was good at sports. I, you know, I used to uh, win a lot of things when we were in elementary school and stuff. Um, I was a pretty good baseball player. Um, I don't know. I always, I, I always focused on the physical stuff. Um, what what about these guys that say uh, that you're dictating terms when it comes to wave riding? Is that the term? Meaning what? What do they say? That you're controlling the wave, that you're dictating the terms. You hear that. Well, Sean Thompson, do you remember that movie Surfers? Yeah. Sean in there, he said something to the effect of Sometimes it feels like you are controlling the wave. And I think that's when you're just tuned in, when you're just really truly like in that flow state and you're just really completely in the moment. And surfing, surfing will show you that immediately. If you're was completely he, tuned in and you're in the moment, uh -huh. you usually make, you'll make that Was wave. he talking about like metaphysical controlling the wave? Like somewhat, psychic, yeah. you know, somehow controlling the matter through your thoughts somehow? Yeah, yeah but I, I, think, I yeah. think that's more of a way to describe uh, it. A more of a, a metaphor for just being just being totally tuned. Well, it's, it's probably facilitated synapses, yeah. like neuromuscular pathways that are really quick and in, in tune. You know, but I've competition had competition brings a lot of this out. Yeah. When you compete, you'll see certain guys will get the wave just at the right time. Gabriel Medina did that at Pipeline this past week, and he, yeah. he's one of those uncanny guys who's incredible talent, 
really great timing. He can pretty much do any maneuver on a surfboard that exists right now. Maybe the best competitor or one of the best competitors on tour who has ever been on tour. He knows how to make the right decisions and control the heat, whether he's in an offensive or defensive position, leading or trailing. Yeah. So there's all these different predicaments you could find yourself in, and you have to dig yourself out of that or control it from that yeah. position. So um, you'll see there are certain guys who can do that. And I mean, I've, I've had times in my career where I've almost just laughed, and I can just feel it. And I just go, the wave's coming. It's like the third one out. And it, I know it's going to come to me, and I'm going to get the score. Or the opposite. I've had the opposite happen. I had this, this one time uh, in 2008, I was surfing in Bali. I was in this heat against a guy who's a buddy of mine on my team, but he shouldn't have beat me in these waves. I, you know, I was favored, I was a high seed or whatever, and it was early in the contest. I had already won three of the first four events of the year or something like that. And um, I had priority, I was in the lead. He needed a big score. I'm totally controlling the heat with a minute and a half to go, and the set comes, and everyone starts yelling from the, we were in, uh, at Ulu. And everyone starts yelling from the hill and stuff. And I just looked out and I went, I'm going to make the wrong decision right now. I knew it. There was nothing I could do to change it in that yeah. moment. <laughs> and I just went, I just, I, something overtook me and it was not my day. And I knew 100% there was absolutely nothing I could do. And I was like, okay, just don't do what you're going to do. And so I got in this whole mind game with myself. And I, then I went crazy. Double negatives. Like, yeah, don't do, do what you're going to do. Yeah, do yeah. What, don't do what you're going to do. So do the opposite. And then and that'll you work. do that. Yeah. It's almost like what Pete Carroll did to lose the Super Bowl a couple years ago with the Seahawks. They yeah. overthought it so much. Did you remember that? Yeah, we always knew he won, yeah. would win one for the Patriots. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I overthought it so much that I made the wrong decision. And I knew I was going to. And I, could, I didn't know how to back myself out of this corner. And... Um, uh, and so this wave came, and I had priority, which means you get any choice of wave. And he turned around to kind of paddle, but he didn't ever, he didn't really paddle, but I just committed to this wave and I took off. And as soon as I stood up and went, oh, there was that wrong decision. And the wave wasn't very good and I didn't increase any of my scores. And I, I fell and I look out and the next wave is absolutely perfect, the best wave of the day. And he gets like a 9.5 and beats me. <laughs> and, and the whole crowd goes crazy and it just felt like everything in the world was against me right then you know because I was really far in the lead to win the world title that year so far I like I said I think I had won three or four events to start the year off and everyone was just like I'm sure they all had their voodoo doll out like Slater should lose <laughs> and it's one of those times where even though it's not going your way it's absolutely like the universe is telling you it's perfect Wow! because you're in you're, you're right where you need to be but it's not what you want to see when did you first know that you were going to be able to make a living at what you love to do and if there was ever anything else you thought about doing hmm. when I was 15 I had a sponsor that started paying me about a hundred bucks 105 bucks a week I think I got <laughs> and I felt rich man I was like this is cool because my mom didn't have much money I mean she my mom basically raised me and my two brothers on 500 bucks a week. 100 bucks a week was a lot to me because uh, it was just in cash and I put it under my pillow, literally just put it under my pillow or <laughs> under the mattress or whatever. And, um, you know, and next thing you know, after a month or two, you have a few hundred bucks and you, you know, when you're 15, you're going out with your friends in a small town, you feel like you got some money, you know. But uh, I didn't spend it on anything but food and, and uh, gas money pretty much. Um, and I would say, I think at 16, I signed a couple of contracts and started to make like, you know, maybe tens of thousands of dollars a year. And then uh, by the time I was, when I was, tw when I was 18, I signed um, a, 
a contract with Quicksilver where I started to make about 75 grand a, a year. Um, I, and then when I was 20, I won the world title and I probably made 150 grand that year or something. And um, so I was starting to kind of make a bit of money. Then you knew it may have been more than that at that time, but um, but at that time I figured, you know, I'm from Cocoa Beach. I'll probably live in either Cocoa Beach or Hawaii, and um, and you knew it was going to happen. You you yeah, had you I, hoped it was yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, at, by 20, I knew it was going to happen. I yeah. was already, I was I was uh, probably at that age the most famous, well-known surfer in the world and making pretty good money, and um, <clears throat> and I don't spend money on a whole lot of things um, other than just a home and travel so you know I don't I don't go out and buy tons of cars and shit like that so for me it, I was like I could probably live forever on this whatever it's gonna be I know a lot of people who are famous top of their game and you've got a very genuine humility to you and and you I can tell you still work hard you're you're looking at all angles of what you do you don't take things for granted and you're I take things I, I, I would say I, I, things have been as I got better and better things become sort of easier for you in yeah. a lot of ways in yeah. li life you, you start to make more money more easily for doing yeah. less and stuff so you, I've definitely had times where I've been overwhelmed by it and that's probably the biggest thing like I, I just still my favorite thing to do every morning is to go surfing and, yeah uh, if I'm not surfing I go play some golf but um, I just love what I do so much, and my mind still ticks over. You know, two weeks ago I was home in Florida, and I went surfing with a childhood buddy of mine. We were kind of like rivals as kids, and just me, him, and his kids went surfing, and spent two days surfing all day. And I, I had two different boards that had different designs to them, and um, the waves are very specific. And and after the on the second day, I really locked in. I, I I've been we haven't even talked about that, but I've been injured for about a year and a half. And I've just started to be able to surf small waves again. Small waves are more difficult to surf than big waves for me because I, you got to move so much and find the energy, and your foot's moving around a lot. Huh. So, interesting. So I, anyways, I felt like that's the first time I've really surfed good in about almost two years now. And I got so excited about because it was fresh to me. When you know, when you do something every day, if you eat the same food every day, if you're yeah. doing the same thing, hanging out with the same people, things are things are not fresh, you know. Yeah. So after that amount of time. For me, at my profession, I start to I start to do really good again, and I know I'm surfing at a high level again. And then I love working on design. So I started. I, I realized I had like these uh, sort of light bulb moments about my surfboards and about the design and what I want to create in a board and the different types of wave that need a different type of design, whether it's templates or rockers. So you design you design surfboards. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> makes sense. So. Um, I think the thing is just being inspired by the thing you love because you find something new or something that's old new again to you. And um, in that way, uh, I get I get really tired of competition. I'm, to be honest, after 35 years of competing nonstop pretty much, I'm, I'm really tired. <laughs> <laughs> My brain's tired, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's not so much the physical thing, but when you're, when you're not inspired and when you're, when you're not excited about something, you get physically tired too. You know that follows. And sure. So I—that's probably why I injured myself. I wasn't—I wasn't very excited or inspired at the time when I hurt myself, and probably a little lazy, not aware of everything that's going on that you need to be. So. You're at the top. You are the guy, and people listen to you. People want to be you. People know who you are. Uh, People—not even people that surf know Kelly Slater. What do you want to do with it now? I mean. 
Mm -hmm. You're gonna you can keep competing or you've got a you've got a platform yeah. and you don't have to do anything I'm not putting you on the spot no, here no, you you can it, you can say I want to raise my daughter and have a nice life you know but uh, yeah. there, do you have any uh, is there anything along those there's lines only, there's only really kind of two things one I heard somebody say the other day the only good use for fame is to do something good with it yeah um, meaning something good in the world and I thought you know with the level of that that I have that I should always do my best I feel like I have an obligation to pass on positivity yep um, whether that's about the environment or acting towards, you know, how you act towards people, um, the choices you make, the way you spend your money, those kind of things. Um, you see a lot in pop culture with famous people. You see a lot of people spending money on stupid stuff, you know, out partying and, and that kind of thing. And the message that sends to kids, you know, I, I, it just drives me nuts when I when I hear people are are uh, influencing kids to do drugs, party do that kind of shit and waste your life, you know? But as a kid, my mom beat it into me. She just was like, look, drugs are stupid. Look around you. See if you find anyone who's a drug addict that's done good with their lives or been successful. And it just, it just was like so obvious to me growing up. Anyone who drank or did drugs was basically an idiot. And um, so I just never got into that kind of thing. And all my energy was focused on the physical stuff with surfing and um, enjoying that. And, and, and building that around myself. Either send that positive message out or, you know, part of me wants to kind of disappear on a boat. <laughs> it's probably inspired by this guy a little yeah, bit. Yeah. But sometimes yeah. I think, you know, it'd be nice to buy a nice catamaran and just go, just go and live the rest of my life like that. Yeah. Um, You'll need a navigator. I can help yeah, you out there. Uh, I, what, what did somebody, I read this other quote by somebody. He said, I spent all this time becoming who I am and now I want to learn how to be nobody. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah, when you when you have money and fame and access and that kind of stuff, it's it's easy to kind of uh, abuse that and not respect what got you there in the first place and for, kind of forget some of that stuff. So keeping your senses keen and and, and your awareness of, about what got you somewhere. All the surfers I know, the genuine people, they're warm. Yeah. Uh, last night I met you at this big cookout. You came over to me and you were like. You know, probably everybody at the cookout wanted to talk to you or, or know you, but you, you made the effort to come over and say, hey, Greg, uh, how are you? You know, we're going to do this thing tomorrow, you know. Was, well, was, no, what happened was I wanted a moose burger. Oh, and I was in the way. Well, no, Porter said, <laughs> I said, Porter said you burger. go get a moose burger until you talk to Greg. Oh. <laughs> so, I kind of was so, so he bribed you. Okay, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. I get it. Hungry, yeah, I've been into animal. I've been into animal training. I know. I know how it works. I've trained seals to do tricks. Yeah, yes. you can. You can get a seal to do anything if you give it. If you give it a treat. No, but they. No, seriously. You know, and also about the environment. I've noticed that surfers care about about the ocean, and and the environment. And you know, you've. I also do by nature but I'll probably push back a little bit with some yeah. topics here as you as you dig push in back yeah bit. well and I'll probably get some shit for saying this kind of stuff but go ahead I think it needs to be said um, the environmental impacts of making clothing and and surf products it needs to be addressed uh, by all the companies it really does what would specifically what are you talking about um it's a dirty business everything's long chained molecules it's uh polymers you mean this wetsuits yeah. wax boards yeah. yeah i just heard this somebody just told me the other day you know this stuff hasn't come out but there's a place they make the um wetsuit materials around te in texas and there's this huge 
pocket in that local area of cancers. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, and it hasn't come out yet in the media, and so we'll see if that pops up soon. I was I served for Quicksilver for many for a couple decades, and then I started to kind of ask questions about the way clothes are made, where they're made, how the, where the textiles come from, where the raw materials come from, all those kind of things. So it's it's a it's a much sort of broader conversation to, to dive into where the raw materials come from, where the cotton's grown, where where does all the stuff come from. What are the factories like? Who makes it? What are the living wages? What are the living conditions for people that build your clothes? What does fast fashion cost? You know, people who wear denim have no idea that there's rivers in China that are blue and they dump straight in the ocean because of the denim runoff. I, I think it's a serious topic, you know? I think it's uh, so much so that I actually left Quicksilver and started my own company. How do listeners connect? I mean, they're gonna hear this and they're gonna go, oh, I didn't know that and I wanna be part of the solution. How do they participate in the solution? Well, I mean, OuterKnown.com is my... That's my OuterKnown.com. Outerknown okay, and you have this kind of information on there. Yeah, we have a lot of the information on there. But okay. we, that's my company, so that's a little bit of a biased statement. Well, but well we, you, you've disclosed that, so you're okay. Yeah, so we, we have been transparent about a lot of the process. And, okay. Uh, all the processes. So we launched our clothing brand, and we're exorbitantly more expensive than all the other surf brands when we came out. And I wouldn't even consider ourselves a surf brand when we launched because we weren't in surf shops. Um, we're selling a lot of stuff online and at high-end stores, a lot of luxury stores, um, luxury clothing stores, but we would be like the cheap product in those stores, but yeah. we're, we're a lot more expensive than the surf world is used to, than fast fashion is used to, than people who shape, shop at a Kmart. But if they buy those clothes, they could be guaranteed of fair labor laws, pollution control, Correct. all that stuff? Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. 100%. Okay. A common thing you'll hear from people is, oh, you make stuff in China. Everyone thinks that's a catchphrase for everything that's made in China. It's yeah. not. I mean, there's horrible human rights in China, yeah. but there's horrible human rights in, yeah. in America. That's right. You know? yeah. So it's ensuring that you have somebody that goes there and vets these places and, and knows who you're working with, knows the people personally, um, knows the working conditions, the, the living wages these people are on, what they do with their waste. They, all these kind of things have to be vetted before you're going to choose to work with somebody. But you can do that in China. You can do that in Vietnam. You could do that in Los Angeles. Or you could make everything in LA and it could be absolute shit and it could be 100 people working in a factory where only 30 people are legally allowed to work and the conditions are horrible. And people who spend their lives on the ocean, under the ocean, generally know more about the ocean than people that have even studied it scientifically or academically. Have you seen, have you seen changes in your life, like from when you started? Yeah, I've seen positive and negative changes. Like what? Um, so let's say a positive one. And when I used to go to France as a kid in the late 80s, early 90s, there was so much plastic in the water. There was so many plastic bags and so much crap in the water. I remember at one point surfing and I thought if I fall and I get a mouthful of water, I might choke on a plastic bag. That's how bad it was. Um, that has noticeably gotten better over the years. I don't know why, I don't know what happened. French used to blame the Spanish because all the, all the swell comes from the west and it moves in. We're in the Bay of Biscayne on the west coast mm -hmm. of France, mm -hmm. southwest of France. And you're kind of, you know, geographically, like the, the Spanish south north coast faces here, and then you got the west coast of France, and they meet. And everything kind of converges in the Biarritz, Hossegor, Anglet area. Um, and and the, the French always said, oh, it's the, it's the Spanish throwing yeah. their stuff in the yeah. water. I don't know what changed, but well, their beaches have cleaned up over the years. Unfortunately, I would say a lot of the third world countries, uh, you know, Central America, you go to these countries, there's so much trash. And yeah. Japan. Japan is one of the worst in the world. Absolutely. I actually wanted to go do some cleanup of some of the beaches in Japan where I was there. Just myself. Just I didn't have a crew. 
and I wanted to take some pictures. I actually took some pictures of all the garbage on the beaches there, and somebody told me, hey, don't, don't open that can of worms. And I was like, I kind of pulled back. I was like, I don't know what that means, but that sounds a little, a little scary. Yeah. I had a friend here who told me they did a cleanup in a, in a harbor in, Tokyo, in Japan. They actually went, no one asked them to do it or whatever. They just went and did it. They cleaned up and there was like batteries and all kinds of yeah. crap. And they had this huge pile of stuff. And whoever was sort of in charge of that area came back and threw it back in the water and told them, leave our place alone. And this kind of stuff is, well, you know, so, it's so it, weird that somebody it, would do that and not want to clean up. You know what's worse for the ocean that happens every day that we still haven't cottoned onto yet? And that's uh, every river mouth on the planet dis disperses agricultural runoff. Pesticides, <clears throat> Pesticides, reactive nitrogen, and phosphorus. Pours out of the Mississippi River. Well, I was going to dive into Florida, too, because being from Florida, all the green and orange algaes that happen inland rivers in, in the freshwater, and then it goes to the ocean, and the pesticides, the fertilizers, are all blooming that the red tides in the ocean. So it, it's doing harm to the fresh and salt water separately. That's right, that's right. They found a fairly simple solution to deal with some of that red tide, and it's throwing clay in the water. Oh, yeah. If you throw clay in the water, the clay particles grab the, the reproductive cysts of the uh, cyanobacteria that causes the, the tide, hmm. and it draws them down into the sediment and kills them. Wow. But this is highly controversial because there's a bunch of environmentalists that don't want people throwing clay in the water because it's an introduced element. However, it, it rectifies a problem that we've already caused. And this gets to my philosophy of, of life here. You know, I, I call it the new normal. And what I, what I like to say is it, it's time that we accept the fact that we humans are now part of this, this small planetary ecosystem. We've got limited resources, and let's get about managing this system long term so that we can survive in it. It's all about changing behavior. How do you change people's behavior? This planet is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. The storms are getting more severe. You know, there's a big problem here. We just, we just think more waves. Right. I you know? totally was going there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in a metaphysical sense, when you, when you, when you do metaphysical work, that once you have an awareness around something, it changes immediately. If you truly get the awareness that you're hurting me and yeah. why, yeah. You, change, you change because you care. Right. And so if people in the world can get somehow get that understanding that we are truly messing it up but it, it becomes so politicized yeah. you got the right and left and you got all these different countries and there's a lot of noise in the system isn't there yeah and like do you take on plastic do you take on um, animal rights do you take you know what topic do, is it clothing what what topic do you take on in your life to become it's the one you're passionate about yeah I guess so and that's your job but there's so many of them it becomes so overwhelming you know I was thinking a few years ago I got really into studying um, houses and prefabs and stuff and I thought what if everyone had to be 70% sustainable in their life they could go buy 30% of their goods or whatever right now we buy close to 100% of what we need but hardly any of us grow food like Porter does here on his property if you had a house that you're growing food on the walls you're catching all your water and recycling it you have an incinerator toilet it's a this is just a I'm just throwing these out there but if you had a, a prefab kind of house you could move, you could buy like that. And the, the whole build up process of that was done in a, in a sustainable way that it wasn't creating extra crap in the environment. I'd hate to see this world have to get so socialized that everything is like Big Brother has to overlook and say what you can and can't do. At the same time, there needs to be some barriers to what uh, 
what we're doing to this world. We always love to look back to World War II because that was the last time the world had clearly defined lines of good and evil, right? And there, and, and, and there was a battle for good and good won. Now, what did it take to win that battle? It took complete commitment. At the beginning of World War II, President Roosevelt called all the car manufacturers to Washington, D.C. And he, he got them all in a room, and he said, okay, guys, we're at war, and I'm going to need 4,000 tanks every month. I'm going to need 10,000 Jeeps every two months. I'm, and he gave them a shopping list of military gear. Hmm. And the car manufacturers, they all looked at each other, and they said, I'm sorry, Mr. President, you know, we can't do that. And he said, what do you mean you can't do that? And he said, well, well if we do that, we, we, we can't make cars. And he said, oh, you don't get it. You're not going to make cars anymore. We're just going to make this stuff because we have to win this battle. If we don't win this war, it's over. So during World War II, for about three and a half years, there were no cars made in the United States. I mean, there was a few, but the, but the yeah, car made. you don't see 42, 43, 44 Chevys. They, they didn't they make didn't them. They didn't exist. They didn't make them. Yeah. And we're still making cars. Yeah. Our, our, our efforts are half-hearted. We are going down the toilet right now mm. unless it's more than growing your food at home. It's more than driving an electric car. It's finding ways to transform the whole economy of Asia through some sort of incentive program. And you're right, it can't be a big brother thing. Yeah. Every great thing in the world that ever happened started with a conversation. Think about I had, that. I had an idea around this. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's good, maybe it's absurd. But I consider myself kind of apolitical. I don't know, I take each topic as it is and I have a, my own opinion about it. Yeah. But I, I'm not a voter. I'm, I don't like to get embroiled in that battle very much. Uh, of course, I, I You're like an that. influencer though, Kelly. Yeah, that's fine. But I mean, people make their own decisions. Yeah. You know, and, and people I'm, listen not, to and you I'm not to say Especially that my people. decision's better than some yeah. other guy. You know, I yeah. got probably my own reasons for saying what I say. But um, I had this idea when, when, when Trump got elected, I was with some friends that were just, they thought it was the end of the world. I mean, yeah. I had friends that we were in Fiji and some friends of mine were literally crying when it happened. And I was like, I don't know. It's this. It's like a different face doing the same thing. I, I don't know if it really matters who's in office anymore. I really don't. I don't, I, and people are going to be surprised probably by me saying that, but I, I don't know if we see any change because it seems like corporations run everything. And it seems like they just lobby behind closed doors to make things happen. And then you put some different thing out in the news. You know, if you watch CNN, you watch Fox, you watch MSNBC, you're going to see completely different stories about the same exact thing. So. No one's getting true information. But I thought when Trump won, I thought, wouldn't it be great if Trump went, okay, we have like, let's just take an energy crisis. We also have job crisis. We have poverty, et cetera. So go, why not go collect the best brains in technology, the best young minds in the world that are going to influence the world for the next 20, 30, 50 years, 100 years, put them all together, take these poverty-stricken areas, create vocational skills for people either to build or to learn about technologies and create um, more focus on renewables in America and make us the forefront of uh, the future of electricity and energy and make that accessible for people around the world. And I went, this guy could go from being the most hated guy ever to become president to the most loved guy because he did something good for humanity. And there's, I think there's an opening for things like Kelly, that to happen. Kelly, that's exactly how we have to think. Yeah, and I think there's an opening for that, for, for those things to happen right now, because people are so polarized. I mean, you could say Obama was way over here, and you could say Trump's way over here, or at least 
in the mindset or the diplomacy that it happens or whatever. Obviously, Obama was a much more diplomatic person as far as like it, he felt like a guy maybe you could sit down and talk to. Trump, for the average person, feels like he's going to tell you how it's going to be. So they're, they're so different, but who knows how different they really are when at the end of the day what got done business-wise. It seems like that's why I get back to corporations. It seems like they end up running things in the end. As long as business is doing well or potentially going to do well soon, that's what kind of structures the policies. I agree with you. In terms of this show, I'm apolitical. You know, I'd want this to become a political show, but mm. there, there are, there is something to be said for uh, autocrats, people that are very, you know, single-minded. It's like if you can get them to do what you want, that kind of activity is, that kind of mindset is good, right? Mm. So as you just pointed out, if if somebody like Donald Trump who wants everything his way, hey, you might hate the guy. Could uh, it doesn't could, matter. Could, if he, but if he can do something that is ultimately good for you and for me, can you get an audience with him? I bet you could. Have you met him? I, I met him once years yeah. ago, but yeah. I don't know. I got a lot of friends who know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are an influencer, though. Um, people listen to you. <laughs> um, do you believe in astrology? We have the same birthday. That's the only reason I Do asked you that. Yeah, that? yeah. Oh, well. oh, <laughs> isn't, isn't that right? Yeah. <laughs> I had a fr I, I, I've had a few friends, a few close friends that had my same birthday. Is that right? But I guess it's a law of averages, you know. Yeah, I don't know if I do. I, I do find it interesting when you read... Uh, I'm a scientist, know, though. When but. you read about zodiac signs. Yeah, but you were talking about metaphysicality, yeah. metaphysical world last, yeah. last night. So some, you, some things I believe yeah. are science yet to be described. Yeah. Yeah, Nikola Tesla talked a lot about that yeah. kind of stuff. I don't know. I, I think when you read something and it, it speaks to you, that when, it, uh, when it seems like something that is good for you, then it, it makes sense. You're learning a lesson. I don't know if astrology works or not. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I, can't, I can't say that it I, does. I, I just thought it was kind of fun we were born on the same birthday, yeah. different years, but the same day. But I think it's cool if somebody's going to look at their crystal ball and then tell you something that you're like, oh, my God, I feel that. And that's, yeah, why, that that's why we both put up with Porter, huh? Probably. <laughs> Does his mother pay you to be his friend too? <laughs> That's running out. <laughs> That's running out. Oh, I wanted to ask you, have you seen any changes in the, you talked about the plastic in Europe. What about, what about like fish or sharks or whales? Or have, you, have you noticed any difference over the years firsthand? Like do you see more sharks now or less sharks? Uh, in Florida, I, I see as many as I've ever seen. It's crazy. Like people... You know, I got a, f a few friends. There are more that, now. Yeah, yeah there, there's a few friends I've met online that are talking about, you know, sharks are all dying off and this kind of stuff. And I would push back on that, It's le at, at least in some of the places I've been. I'm sure there are pockets yeah. where sharks have been decimated, absolutely. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot of imbalances around the world. I think Reunion Island's probably a good example of that, where a lot of shark attacks happen on surfers yeah. in the past few years, the yeah. past six or eight years. Um, because they kind of fished everything out and it's a volcanic island and it's super ultra deep around yeah. it. So the sharks are near shore, the fish are gone, they're going to eat anything that moves. Um, so th there's been an imbalance there. That's probably why there's been so many attacks. Um, you ever had a shark uh, approach you? Surfing? Yeah, I, uh, well, I don't know if I've been looked at as Amelia. I mean, I'm sure I have at some point. Like, yeah, from you below. Know. Yeah. But um, I, w I was fishing in Florida a couple of years ago. We were going out trying to get cobia. And we thought, oh, we'll fish off the back of all the, uh, the the shrimp boats that are out there. And a lot of fish hang out just behind and get the bycatch and stuff. And there was at least 150 sharks behind every single boat, and we couldn't catch a fish. There were so many sharks. I actually reached down the water and picked one up by hand. Really? They were just yeah, they were coming around our boat okay. so much. Um, I don't know, a little black tip, I think. A little black tip? Yeah. One thing people don't realize, though, is that there's been shark conservation measures in place now in places for 
five, 10, 20 years in some cases. Yeah, the sharks, been the sharks 30, are begin, 40 years. They're beginning to come back now. Yeah. And that's why uh, there's more encounters here in Hawaii. They don't like to talk about it, but every year. There was one yesterday, right out here. I heard, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was Perry Porter's uh, son was involved in it. And when I lived in the Big Island, a couple of people got eaten Tigers. over there. Yeah. And that, that's a result of shark conservation, because I went down to um, Puaco. And when that guy, that, that doctor got eaten, uh, he was swimming in real shallow water. It was, it was something out of Jaws. I mean, he was, like, he was like in three feet of water. There was a whole bunch of swimmers between him and the open ocean, and the shark somehow made its way in. I think he lived. It bit him. Remember that about four years ago? Is that in Puaco? Yeah, it was in inside. Well, I went down to Puaco and I found the old timers and I asked them. I said, you know, this tiger shark just bit this guy over here. I said, tell me, tell me the story about, you know, tigers in, in Hawaii. And they said, oh, well, in the old days when we found out there was a tiger shark around, because they would know, people would report it, we'd go catch it. And he said, we're not allowed to catch them anymore. Yeah. So. Therefore, you know, you've got more sharks around now. Basically, shark populations are returning to what they once were. Yeah, well, I, you know, I got embroiled in this debate about a year and a half ago. Yep. Because uh, I have a friend of mine who lost three friends to shark attacks on Reunion Island. Really? Now, three? He lost three. That's a lot. Yeah, three good friends. Yeah. But seven people died there over a portion of like six years. Uh-huh. Um, there were 10 or 12 attacks in that amount of time, and seven people died. And there were people there that knew every single one of those people that died. All those attacks happen in about a, uh, predominantly, except for I think one of them happened on about a 15 mile stretch of coast. So that many attacks in that short a period of time in 15 miles, something's wrong, something's off. Something's off, yeah. They're yeah. all bull sharks too, almost all bull sharks. Oh, bull sharks. sharks. Yeah. yeah, they can be nasty, yeah. They're super nasty. Um, maybe one or two tigers, but I think they're predominantly bull sharks attacks. And, you know, I started doing the numbers where if that, if that same uh, the same statistics happen, say, in Florida, it's going to be like 400 attacks that have happened in that time. So something doesn't make sense. I'll tell you one story. This is a second-hand story. I, 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 a friend of mine was diving off of Tasmania, and there's a lot of great white sharks there. So he was one of the scientists, and the other scientist brought his wife with him. And she wasn't a scientist, but she was a diver, and she did not want to go in the water. She was, like, very nervous and everything. So. Everybody goes in, and the dive master stayed on the boat. The husband went underwater with the first team, but the dive master was trying to calm her down and finally talked her into jumping in the water. So the dive master and her jump in the water, and she hits the water, and she doesn't have her buoyancy right, which is very common with novice divers, right? So the dive master sank, as you're, as you're supposed to, you know, when you get in the water, but she was, like, floundering, trying to get her buoyancy compensator dumped. And by the time they looked up, this great white shark came and just took her away. Uh, you, you just don't want to flounder around at the surface yeah. uh, for too long. And George Greeno talks about that. He had six encounters with great whites in about, I want to say, like a one-year period of time. Flipping around on the surface. A whale was buried on the beach in Lenox, and so there was oil draining out. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And all <clears> these great whites are converging there, and it's really deep off the coast anyway. But um, he rides surf mats. He doesn't, doesn't ride surfboards, so he's not floating. He's down in the water kind of body surfing. And he had six different run-ins with great whites in about a year period of time, and he wrote this article about it. Like his theory is that you have to face the, the predator. You do. And you have to calm down. Yep. To stop the moving. He said, you know, you want to paddle at about 50% of your speed and yep. down. You don't want to look 
like just some floundering thing trying to get away. You know, as soon as the gazelle starts running, the lion eats it, right? They paddle right at it. Yeah, he goes right, paddle right at it. And There's one, a psychology one, to it. They can they can feel how you're feeling. One tricked him because there was a, there was a morning sun to the east, and the thing got on the side of the sun and was pointing at him, so he couldn't tell where it was. Yeah. And he had another guy with him, and they were in shallow enough. They were in pretty shallow water, and he had the other guy get behind him. He's like, I've dealt with these things, but uh, he got through all of them. But six run-ins with great whites. I've never had one run-in with a great white. So that's a lot. I've never, I've never had it. I've had a, the biggest problem I ever had was with a, was a silky shark. Yeah. It was out and it was about five miles offshore. We were doing a blue water dive and they're used to responding fast because- Like an oceanic white tip. Yeah, like an oceanic white tip would. And I, as soon as I popped in the water, man, he came right at me. I had a shark stick, so I, you know, whacked him off. And he went out about 10 feet, he came right back, I whacked him again. And then he just went out there and then he realized that I wasn't something to eat. And he was kind of curious, he just kind of hung out for a while. But other than that, I, I, I haven't had any problem at all. Because usually with the, like the gray reefs, when they start to get upset, you know, you can tell because they kind of hunch up a yeah. little bit. And, we had and one come up on us in, in the Bahamas. My, my friend's daughter speared a fish and the thing was on her. She would never moved about six, more than six feet from her and I thought it was going to bite her. So gray reef? Yeah. yeah. I got between her and the shark and kind of started poking at it. Yeah. And I was like, I'll, I mean, I'll take a bite before she will. You know, I, I just, she got the fish out of the water and the thing backed off. Yeah. My instinct was to try and protect her because I'm like, I'm a guy, I'll get in the way. <laughs> you know? But I, as soon as I did, I'm like, oh shit, I, I could be in trouble here. Yeah. And, uh, but it, luckily it backed off. But I, I, was, I was just going to clean up on that reunion island thing I was yeah. telling you about. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, was, I was real sick. I was breaking a fever and, and I'd been in bed for a couple of days. And it was my birthday, actually. Our birthday. Our birthday. <laughs> That's fast. You're good. <laughs> and and, uh, and I, I opened up my phone and I read this this uh, an Instagram post from him and he said, you know, it's horrific to watch another friend of mine die from a shark attack. And I said, all those sharks should be called until the, the bite stops, right? So I, I, I just said that on his comments. And then one of the surf sites picked it up and posted it. And all of a sudden it became like a news thing. Oh. And for about a week straight, nonstop, I got attacked by shark species. Conservationists, yeah, yeah. Conservationists. And I had people telling me, fuck you, I hope you die. That shark, you should die before a single shark should die and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, wow, this is, these people are crazy about this stuff, you know? And I, I understand they're like trying to protect nature or whatever, but. They're going to put themselves I, in. I, I doubt they're going to go fall on the sword before a shark, you know? Ask them if, ask them how they would feel if they were in the water with the shark attacking. Well, they just say you shouldn't use the water because that's for nature. And I said, well, we, again, we're, we're, part, we, of we're part of nature now. We have the right to go use that. Um, you know, if, if, if any animal in nature is in a certain area and something goes to kill them or their own, they're going to fight back and kill it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's a natural uh, reaction, but we shouldn't, we sh I don't think we should go kill to control everything necessarily, but to no. protect ourselves is kind of a, it's a, it's a little bit of a different argument, but it's, I'm sure it's even just coming out, people will go crazy on it again, but. I want listeners to know sharks are not demonic. They're not after us. We need them. They keep the ocean healthy. Yeah. And you just have to be careful of any wild animal, including, including sharks. I lived in LA for a long time and I was stuck in traffic. And you know, you get road rage. You just do, like, I don't care how zen you are. Like at some point you're gonna get road rage from all the traffic. Yeah. And I wanted to start this, um, I wanted to start like a radio show or podcast, if you will, um, that would play during peak traffic hours about shark attacks. I figured 
that while people are in their cars, they'd be enjoying listening to this. They wouldn't want to get home. Kelly, I have a, this is a thank you from me to you. This is a book uh, about the ocean. It was written in the 1860s. Wow. And it's Before every... Plastic. What's that? Before it's plastic. a pre-plastic book. Pre and book. this is, uh, uh, it's everything that was known about the ocean in 1888. And uh, I find it a very good read, and it's, it's my way of sincerely thanking you for your time and your insights for being on the show. So thank you, thank you. for that. There thank you go. You All bet. Right. All right, yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe have be back on the show someday sure. if you're in L.A. or here. It's been really fun. Porter, thank you for being on the show and introducing me to Kelly and your stories and uh, allowing us to, to be here with all your chickens in the background and, and the gunfire. Uh, thank you, listeners. Uh, that's the end of this week's episode with uh, the number one surfer in the world today, Kelly Slater. Thank you.